0: That is where we are at. Um, Daniel chapter 11. So uh, we'll remember the last week in Daniel chapter 10, that was really a preface, uh, sort of an introduction, if you will, to the prophecy that we read in Daniel chapter 10, excuse me, Daniel chapter 11 and 12. So we're going to get into that just a little bit. The portion that we're going to cover this morning, though, uh, is largely going to be history. Remember that from Daniel's perspective, it is yet future. It's still to happen, and it's very consistent with the other visions that we've seen in Daniel, but it really uh, divides into two major uh, portions in chapter 11. Uh, we have the major rulers of Persia, uh, because there are more kings than what are discussed here, and I want to make that plain and clear that when we go and look, when God says in verse 1, or excuse me, in verse 2, there shall yet be three kings in Persia, when we go and look at these kings, and we see where they fall in here, very closely aligned, very detailed uh, with the prophecy that we read, that there might be more kings uh, before or after the kings that we encounter. What it means, this is from the divine perspective, as far as God is concerned, there's really three significant kings. And so we can limit it to that. But there are others that may not be mentioned, whether it's there, whether it's uh in in the Grecian Empire, and in the results uh, of Alexander's kingdom being split up, all of those things. So uh we have the major rulers of Persia and really great detail of the major events. Uh, of the third empire, and we say third empire as we're referencing back to Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter two, and we're referencing back to uh, even Daniel chapter eight, where we have these, and these beasts, and each one of them representing kingdoms, and we're even told in Daniel chapter eight that the third one is Grecia. and so that's being referenced here, so the third empire following Alexander the Great, concluding with Antiochus the fourth, Antiochus Epiphanes, that's the first 35 verses, and that's what we're going to cover this morning. From our perspective, this is all history. This has all happened. It's all done. From Daniel's perspective, it's all yet future. It's something yet to come. And remember that the book of Daniel is criticized by uh, mostly by liberal scholars because they say it's so accurate that it couldn't have been, uh, that it would have had to have been written as something looking back as a historical book yet we find this great detail in these prophecies before us and ultimately we understand that to be because of the sovereignty of god so we have two categories in chapter 11 uh first being those major persian uh, empires everything up to antiochus Epiphanes, and then verse 36 through 30 through 45 through the end of the chapter deals with the Latin, and really, not just there, but into chapter 12, uh, in some respects, deals with the last Gentile ruler who will be in power at Christ's second advent. When Jesus returns, uh, the guy that's in power there. What we do find, or what we don't find in this chapter is the entire church age. Us right now, where we're living today, it's in history, it's in this but it's skipped. And the reason that we find that it's skipped is because what is being prophesied here, and this is very clear, is that this is what happens with Israel. This is Israel's relationship to these Gentile rulers and how they're affected by all that is being prophesied here. So that's the discussion that's happening. That's what's going on here. And so we don't find the church in this. And there's uh, As we get to chapter 12, uh, we're going to identify another reason that we probably don't find the church in a lot of what's happening here. But let's get into this, okay? It's in the details. Uh, in the first 35 verses, first 35 verses of this chapter, there's about 135 specific, very detailed prophetic statements. And each one of those is, has been fulfilled. As I said, critics attack the accuracy because it has to have been written in, from, the, from the perspective looking back. It's so detailed. It's so accurate. It's so representative of what we actually found in history. But for you and I, it would be no surprise that our omniscient, our all-knowing, and our omnipotent, all-powerful God, Creator who spoke everything into existence, would be able to accurately predict future events. I mean, if he knows everything, the beginning from the end, at the moment that it was even created and before it was created, it would be no surprise if he'd know exactly with great detail what would happen. Those who would criticize the accuracy of biblical prophecy. And it's well understood by good scholars that Daniel chapter 11 is one of the most detailed prophecies in Scripture. Those who would criticize it don't know the God of the Bible. They understand it to be something less than He is. Turns me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, familiar territory for us, but let's reiterate, we need to have this Uh, in mind, so to speak. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress, is what the word means, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So there are those who don't want to deal with the accuracy and the detail that the Bible has given, that God has recorded for us, Because if that is true, then what else is true in Scripture? If God says that this is going to happen, and with great detail, we see it fulfilled throughout history, what else did God say that is true that I have to therefore deal with? We find that all of this stuff is suppressed, it's held down. We don't want to deal with it because it reveals within us where we stand with God. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 3, and we we cover this regularly because this is a key thing for us to, to understand the motivations, why people would interpret Scripture differently, why they would want to not acknowledge God and His existence and the very reality of His righteousness. It's one of the presuppositions that we would hold that God exists and secondly that his word is true if god exists just as the bible assumes it does in genesis chapter 1 in the beginning he was in the beginning god rather it doesn't have to explain him it doesn't have to deal with any of that of his origin he is and as he told moses in exodus chapter 3 i am that i am i'm self-existent uncreated as the creator he gets to make the rules he gets to set the standard I don't want to deal with the accuracy in Scripture, people would say, because I don't want to deal with the rules, the things that God has established. I want to be able to establish my own rules. right? When, we, when somebody sat around and said, listen, let's, let's make up a card game. Let's, we're going to use cribbage as an example. Our family plays cribbage. And so, you, yeah, we'll just use regular cards, And 15 and 31 will be key numbers in all of this. And not only that, but we're going to have a board to keep track of the points. And, you know, you make up all these rules. The people that created cribbage made the rules. And we play by those rules even today because they created it. And this is how you play the game. And everybody knows when you can sit down to play cribbage, this is how you play it. And in the same way, God said, I make the rules. But he didn't just make the rules to a game. He made the rules to everything. He set the standard. standard of righteousness that God is looking for is equal to his. And we have a problem because we fall far short. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. What well, we earn by that, but it continues on. The gift of God, what he gives us when we don't deserve it, is eternal life through Jesus Christ his son? So we have those who are suppressing this truth. They don't want to deal with the accuracy of scripture because there it is, and it forces me to acknowledge the accuracy of scripture in other areas. In Second Peter chapter three, which just coincidentally, maybe less than coincidentally, is dealing with the same ear, uh, not the same, dealing with. Yet future prophecy, Second Peter chapter 3, let's begin in verse 3. It says, knowing this, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. Okay, scoffers, that's somebody who's going to make fun of. Those are the people who are going to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the method of suppression that they are going to use is going to be mockery. Okay, we're going to there are going to be scoffers in the last days, walking after their own lusts. In other words, they're making their own rules. If I can just phrase it that way. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they are from the beginning of creation. Right, you you Christians, you say Jesus is coming again, but hey, we've been waiting thousands of years, and it's always been the same ever since creation. And they forget. He says in verse 5, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. So we have this statement of God being the creator. He spoke it into existence. Everything that we know in the universe and everything that we don't know in the universe, spoken into existence by God. Just as it says in, in the book of Genesis whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So we we fast forward several chapters and thousands of years in history to Genesis chapter 6. And what do we find in Genesis chapter 6? That the imaginations the thoughts of the hearts of men is always evil continually. This is a common problem, and it's the same problem that we experience today. What they don't want to acknowledge is the seriousness of sin, so much so that God would condemn the entire world, justly so. He's the creator. He sets the standard. They broke the standard. Righteousness equal to mine. You failed. All of sin. So therefore, he says, I'm going to judge sin, and I'm going to save eight people on a boat that I told them to build. And we've got to save the rest of the animals and all those things. That's where Noah and his art come in. And we don't want to acknowledge that. We have an attack on the foundations there. Because if those things are true, then the coming judgment that God is looking at for sin is also true. Why is there a delay? He answers the question for us. They don't want to acknowledge that the world perished, verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store. God is preserving them, reserved in the fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. This is yet future. Something is coming. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. So here's all this discussion about judgment, about God being the creator, all those things, and here is the substantive part. This is the thing we need to pay attention to, and he tells us that. Pay attention, beloved. Be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, it doesn't mean that one day, as we read it in Genesis, is somehow analogous to thousands of years. That's, it doesn't equate to long ages of time. What it's saying is that God is operating in his perfect time. That's what it's saying. And much more substituted, the thought continues, you said, that the Lord is not slack. Concerning his promises, The Lord's not forgetful. He didn't somehow, you know, I got tired of bringing everything to pass and, and just really being sovereign, and so I gave up. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, it says. But He is long-suffering to usward. In other words, God is suffering long. He's tolerating the sinfulness of mankind. Why? Not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. So this statement of God's promise of salvation, of of redemption, which we find first uttered all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. That yeah, there's going to be death as a result of sin, but I am going to come myself and take on flesh so that I may redeem you oh, and by the way, the nearer we get to the end, I'm going to tolerate and suffer long so that as many as would will come to me. God, in His mercy towards us, said, listen, I'm going to put off my judgment. I'm going to reserve it for a, for a time later so that as many as will come could be saved. It's a statement of His mercy. we we have those who choose to ignore the reality of past judgment of sin and they choose to ignore the promise of future and eternal judgment yet to come and at the same time they choose to ignore the mercy of god who is not willing that anyone should perish that's not his desire but it is the just consequence in fact it's the default for those who are not born again, those who are not in Christ. We talk about it in the context of it being the hard truths of Scripture. And it is. It is a hard truth. It's true. But there is a consequence for sin. There is a penalty for our sinfulness. And it is an eternal judgment. It's in the details. All of these details... 135 of them. Detailed, specific prophecies fulfilled in these first in 35 verses. And people don't want to acknowledge that because it forces them to acknowledge other things about Scripture. Let's read verse 2. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 in Daniel chapter 11. Also I, and remember who is speaking here, this is not Daniel, this is the the angelic being who has appeared to Daniel, who is who is speaking to him. Also, I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. I want to just pause there for a moment. This angel comes and strengthens him. We looked at this last week, and we have this behind-the-scenes glimpse for you know just a little bit. That behind-the-scenes glimpse of that spiritual warfare and that being manifest in these kingdoms and the interactions that are happening there, we know that with that curtain pulled back just a little bit, that God is in full control of even that. And here we get a little glimpse of that. This angel is there strengthening Darius because it's not time. It's not time for Darius to, to fall yet. That's, that has yet to happen. So here he is. He makes that utterance. And I will show thee the truth. Verse 2. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grisha. Grecia being Alexander the Great's kingdom. Macedonian, th- that, that's where we're at. Okay, So we have these four, These I, I have three in the notes. It's wrong. Three, there's four. The fourth one's going to be richer. So you have to pay attention. You guys all failed the test. You got to... Just, te- just teasing i made a mistake there's four major kings in persia xerxes being the last uh, from the divine perspective okay and we know that turns me to daniel chapter 8 not only do we know it uh from daniel 8 but as we read through our chapter let's look at daniel chapter 8 uh, verses 6 through 7 and he came to the ram that had two horns which i have seen standing before the river and ran unto him in the fury of his power and i saw him come I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him and smote the ram and break his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he was cast down to the ground and stamped upon him. There was none that could deliver him from the ram out of his hands. Now, remember, the, the ram is media Persia. That's their, that empire. This uh, goat that's being discussed here, that's Alexander the Great. He conquers Persia. Xerxes being the last king, and we we know that because as we go through and we study uh, history, Alexander the Great was motivated, and it says here that he was moved with choler in chapter 8. He, he was moved with bitterness against Persia. Because you remember the Dal- Xerxes had gone into, per- and into Greece. Uh, this is where we get the Battle of Thermopylae. We, we have all of those things, and ultimately he's defeated. He's not successful, and that's really the begin of the decline of the Persian Empire. He comes back and he never, that, that empire never really recovers. But Alexander the Great is on record saying, you know, he's bitter against Xerxes coming into Grecia because he didn't just come in and, and, and conquest. He came in and he sent emissaries to these, these nation states saying, listen, you can either join us or die. I mean, he gave them no option. We're going to conquer you, and you're going to suffer great loss, or you're just join us now. And he was defeated. I mean, he had some victories, but he had some great losses as well. And the Persian Empire never really recovered. So from God's perspective, Xerxes is really the last king. He's the fourth king. He was very wealthy, all of those things. But that's the decline of the Persian Empire. In verses 3 and 4, we have this discussion about Alexander the Great. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided unto the four winds of heaven, not to his posterity nor according to his dominion, which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up even from others beside those. So we have Alexander the Great. Remember, here he is, his great conqueror. He goes and expands the Macedonian empire throughout, conquers Media and Persia, and when he gets, he finds like there's nothing else to conquer. And so he goes back and he tries to establish his kingdom. Just as he's coming to the height of his kingdom, so to speak, he dies. Young man, and he dies. And his kingdom is divided each, uh, uh, as it says here, the four winds, right? His four generals divided into four territories, and they each take one. His heirs don't receive any of it, and that's what's being referenced there. In verses 5 through 29, and we're not going to read all of it, we have this interaction between the Seleucids and Egypt. Seleucids being one of the four generals, and he took that area over to the east around the promised land, around Gaza, uh, India, those areas. The Ptolemies, being another one of the uh, generals of Alexander, took Egypt. The other two don't matter. We don't find them in scripture from the divine perspective. They're out there, but these are the two we have to focus on. So the Seleucids, I may say Syria. It's the same region. It's the same thing. Okay, Seleucid, so Syria, and, and Egypt. And then we also have in verse 30, it says, for the ships of Chittim shall come against him. That's Rome. Chittim is Rome. So these are the major players that sort of, line themselves out here. Now, as we get into the Seleucids in Egypt, because so much of this history is their history, there's a lot of kings, and there's a lot of uh, pharaohs, so to speak, in, in from Egypt that are being discussed here. You can't just say that it's this one guy. It's about 150 years of history that transpire in that Syrian-Egyptian conflict that we read in, in those verses in Daniel 11. Uh, there's several Ptolemies, there's several Seleucids, there's several Antiochuses, even Cleopatra is a player in this, right? We all know who Cleo, we probably don't know, but we've heard the name Cleopatra, right? She was actually given, she was one of the, Sele, she was from the Seleucid empire. She was from the Syrian empire given as a, to one of the Ptolemies, uh, Ptolemy, uh, Phileander, Phile, something along those lines who's an old man, to be his wife. Ultimately, the guy over here is like, hey, listen, my daughter will be the ruler in Egypt when he dies. problem was, Cleopatra consistently sided with her husband and not with her father. It's this seesaw battle, this going back and forth. Okay, We're going to go through these very quickly. If you want to do some study, if you want to dive into the history and all those things, from our perspective, looking back, the accuracy of, of prophecy and that, what that is, that's significant to us because it addresses the authority of Scripture and its trustworthiness. So you can go and do the study. You can figure it out all on your own. There's great commentaries. There's a lot of good information out there. We're going to go through it very quickly because a couple of reasons. Number one, Daniel didn't know the names of any of these people, and it was still substance. It was still important. We don't have to know the names of any of these people. The reason we take any time at all is because it helps us to understand the accuracy. Number two, it's boring. I mean, unless you're a real history nut, it's kind of boring. I'm not saying it's unworthy of our time, but you don't want to hear it. (laughs) Okay, so let's burn through it real quick. Verse five, in the king of the south, South is Egypt. So, whenever we hear king of the south, it's one of these Ptolemies. Okay. The king of the south shall be strong and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So, one of the princes there in Egypt, now it's not even really ultimately, it's not even really a, a Ptolemy. It's somebody from the Seleucid Empire who has sought refuge in Egypt temporarily. And ultimately, he is strengthened, and over time, as he, uh, with the help of Egypt, conquers further lands, becomes more powerful than the Ptolemy that's here guarding him. Okay, but we have that. He, he grows up, and we have great specificity. Um, that's Seleucus, the, uh, the first uh, aided by Ptolemy. Um, anyway, if you want the names, I can give you the names. Uh, So we go through the end of the years. After a period of time, they join themselves together. For the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand nor his arm. But she shall be given up. And they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. So we have a lapse of years at the end of years. So this time is past. Ptolemy the second gives his daughter to marry Antiochus the second this is not a successful alliance like i said this is boring right i mean you get it. it maybe it's not boring to some of us but uh verse seven but out of the branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate okay not her branch of the roots is a reference to lineage. It wasn't one of her children. It was her brother who comes down and fights against, excuse me, comes up, fights against the king of the north. When we read about the king of the north, that's the Seleucid Empire. That's Syria. These two are back and forth. And as we read through these verses, there's a battle of one over here and a battle of one over there. All of this back and forth and this fighting. Nobody ultimately is winning. Nobody's prevailing. And there's reasons for that. We're going to cover that here in just a moment. And we have this long interaction. And near the end of this interaction, we find a a leader rising up. Let's read about him. Let's begin in verse uh, verse 20. Uh, Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes. So we have somebody, and this is in Syria. This is in the king of the north. We have uh, uh, Seleucus philipator he was absolutely known for raising taxes this is where rome kind of begins to play a role the Seleucid empire syria is now paying tribute to rome so he has to raise taxes and he's known throughout history as this raiser of taxes very specific detail right here Uh, so he raiser taxes in the glory of the kingdom but within a few days he shall be destroyed and neither in anger nor in battle so this guy just dies And that's the long and short of it. This guy, that particular ruler, died. (laughs) He's known as a raiser of taxes. And who rises up in his estate? A vile person. We have this first description of any, and this 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 is, the rest of this portion deals with this particular person. And the vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom. So he's not the legitimate heir. He's not the legitimate heir, but he's going to take the kingdom anyway. He shall come to it peaceably and attain the kingdom by flatteries. Now, we've encountered this person before. This is Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. That's who this is. And really, we have this huge section given to Antiochus. He plays a major role in this history. And the reason he plays a major role in this history is because of his interactions with Israel. So, Antiochus Epiphanes, he's this vile person. Now, the way he comes to power is when his uh, brother dies, the raiser of taxes. He comes in, pretends to be the caretaker of his nephew, who's just an infant, and by flatteries ends up taking over the kingdom. That's how he becomes to power. He's not the legitimate king, but there he is nonetheless. If we jump down to verse 22, and the arms of a flood, uh, and with the arms of a flood shall they be overthrown from before him and shall be broken. Yea, also the prince of the covenant. Whenever we read about the covenant here in this chapter, this is a reference to the Jewish state. That's who God has covenant with. And we find it a couple of times in this, in this passage. We have this continuing seesaw going back and forth with Antiochus. And Egypt, verses 23 through 29, outlist, uh, outline that, and a league is made with him, and he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with the small people. Uh, he, he makes these various leagues with these other nations. And ultimately, he's doing it for his own good. He's not trying to support everything, but he's, he's doing it for his own uh, prosperity and his own establishment. He shall enter peaceably, even upon the fattest places, verse 24, of the province. And he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and the spoil and the riches. Yea, he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds, even for a time. So he goes around and he's making these leagues. He's collecting all of this uh, taxation, essentially, and he's distributing that. He's buying allegiance. And he's doing it right within his own empire. So he goes over here, uh, over into Asia Minor, and he deals with some of those people, and he takes their tribute. He goes over here to some other place, and he buys their favor with that. He takes from them, and he goes back over to Asia Minor, and he buys their favor from them. He's slimy. Verse 25. And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. Okay, South being Egypt. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to the battle in a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. Antiochus Epiphanes overcomes Egypt. That's the long and the short of it. And so even in verse 26, where he's talking about the king of the south, his cupbearer, that he feeds him, the portion of his meat shall destroy him. We find that being absolutely the case that one of the, the Ptolemies that ultimately uh, Antiochus defeats is poisoned by his cupbearer. We have these things, uh, and that's how he wins. Both of these kings' hearts, verse 27, shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper. So they come together, they try and make these allegiances to somehow confirm peace, and it doesn't work because they're both there lying. That's not their goal. That isn't what they want to do. This seesaw battle. Let's jump down to verse 30. The ships of Chittim, that's Rome again. They shall come against him. Therefore, therefore, he shall be grieved in return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. Okay. Antiochus comes into Egypt. And Rome is there, and they say, listen, you can stay here and be annihilated by Rome, or you can go home. And he chooses to go home because he knows he'll lose. And what does it say here? He was grieved. He basically, Antiochus goes back to the promised land, back to where he came from, back to Jerusalem, and he throws a fit, and he persecutes the Jews as a result. That's what he does. And this is where the serious interactions begin to take place. Verse 31 and the arms, uh, and arms shall stand on his part. So he's got military might there in Jerusalem, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. Okay, ultimately, Antiochus Epiphanes comes in and he persecutes the Jews so much so that he desecrates the temple, he offers his sacrifice there, we read in the book of Maccabees, 1st, 2nd Maccabees, about this time, it's a historical book, and we read about that, and he offers this, the, these pigs on the, on the altar there, desecrates the temple, he forbids their daily sacrifice, they can no longer bring their offerings, uh, their sin offerings, all those things that are commanded, we looked at those in, in some detail a couple of weeks ago, and then he sets up an idol in the temple. We don't know exactly what the idol was, but he sets this idol up in the temple. Uh, he turns many Jews to his side. There are those who side with Antiochus. Uh, and, and really, the historical record that we'll read the Maccabees confirms that. But he's not the end of the story. Antiochus isn't in of the story. He is a type of what is to come. Right, So we're we're studying in Sunday school, we're studying typology and these pictures and shadows, foreshadowing of things that are yet to come, or, or excuse me, they're not yet to come. These foreshadowings from the Old Testament confirmed in Jesus Christ. That here is God painting a picture and giving us a shadow of those things that are perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And while Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't fulfill the prophecy, and we're going to come to that here in just a moment well, he does fulfill prophecy. He literally fulfills this prophecy that we're just reading right now. But there's yet unfulfilled prophecy that there are those who would say Antiochus Epiphanes did fulfill. He is simply foreshadowing the coming persecution of Israel in the end. Uh, Verse 35, if we just jump there for a moment, and some of them understanding shall fall to try them and to purr to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. So in the same context, in the same line of thought, and and really we have a couple of verses there discussing Israel. Discussing Israel, discussing their faithfulness, discussing their value and their worth in God's perspective. Uh, But it says that there is yet a time appointed for, for something to come. We have a statement within the prophecy itself telling us that there is something yet more. And then in Matthew 24, verse 15, and we've looked at this before, Jesus says, listen, when you see the abomination of desolation set up in the temple, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, reference to to what is yet to come, that we're not going to get to this week, He says, flee to the hills. Antiochus Epiphanes is simply a type of what is yet to come. How would it be to be the type of the Antichrist? I mean, here's a sleazeball who comes to power through treachery and flatteries, who just is slimy as all get out and ultimately persecutes the people of God that he has established covenant with. And you get to be the picture of what is yet to come by the chief persecutor of, of, of Israel, by the head of the enemies of God as we've looked at it. Where he's actually going to let the temple be rebuilt there on the Temple Mount, and we know that has to happen prophetically. That has to happen, and that ultimately uh, becomes a shrine to the Antichrist, to that last Gentile ruler. How would it be? Do you think? I mean, it makes me wonder if. I mean, I, I don't think Antiochus had any clue. He was clueless. He wanted to be God. He wanted to acknowledge these things. And that's and that's what Epiphanes means, Antiochus, the splendid one. And he gave himself that name. He wanted to be worshipped as God. And that's pretty clear throughout history. So we have this foreshadowing of all those things that is coming. We have this looking forward to something yet. And that's what the rest of this chapter is about. This person that Antiochus foreshadows so we skip thousands of years from the verse 35 to verse 36 so if you want to do like me i just drew a line all the way across my bible right there so that i knew i would remember there's a break in timeline there and that becomes more obvious as we go through this what does all this have to do with anything We know that there is accuracy in prophecy, and we know that that is a confirmation to us of the authenticity and the authority of God's word. We know that that uh, reveals in the hearts of those who would suppress that very truth a hard heartedness. But what else does it mean to us? I want to make two applications this morning briefly, not spend a ton of time here. We've talked about these, and these are really some of the big themes throughout the book of Daniel. We introduced them at the beginning before we even got into the book, and here we are encountering them yet again. But first, God is in control. And secondly, those who know God will be strengthened to take action. And we find that here in our text. So let's look at this. God is in control. We would state that in the the phrase that God is sovereign. He is in control. Like I said, He exists. He spoke everything to existence. He gets to set the rules. He's established the timeline. He maintains the timeline. I mean, that almost sounds like a Marvel movie. Terrible, terrible. But it sounds like one, right? You got to maintain the timeline and all this stuff. God is in control. Turn with me to verse 14. Let's go back to verse 14. And at those times there shall stand, there shall many stand up against the king of the south. Also, the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. Now let's talk about that. So we have this king from the north, and he's going to return, and he's going to bring this multitude, and many of those shall stand up against the king of the south. Okay, so the king of the north, Syria, is fighting against Egypt once again. And it says, It also the robbers of thy people. Daniel is a Jew. So we have Jewish people who are going to stand with Syria. Now the problem with this is that the Ptolemies have been very supportive of Israel. That's that's the history there. Yeah, there's going to be those, the robbers, and the the reference there is to robbers, it really means the men of violence. That's what the the Hebrew term there means, men of violence. Uh, But it's a referral to the number of Jews uh, who joined with Syria. They, They have some offense because Egypt has left uh, a garrison of soldiers in Jerusalem, and they feel like they're being occupied. They're more legitimately being protected, but there it is. They don't like it. These men of violence, they want to rise up. They see opportunity for them themselves, and so we are going to side with the other guys, and they begin to fight against it. That's, that's what's happening there. It's a very specific prophecy. It's a very detailed fulfillment in history. But what happens? They shall fall. Those who oppose God are going to fall. It shouldn't be any surprise. We know that that is the case. But here's the thing. In the midst of all this, there is some time transpiring, isn't there? There is time from from verse 13, uh, which is about 201, excuse me, verse 14. It's about 201 B.C., all the way down to uh, Antiochus Epiphanes in about 175 B.C., And we've got 30 years that transpired there where there's this back and forth battle continuing between Syria and Egypt. Those things are still happening. For you and I, the application is this, that those who oppose God are going to fall. They will face judgment at his hands. We understand that. The Bible says for you and I that we don't take vengeance because vengeance is his. He will repay, saith the Lord. We know that there are those around us who are working, actively engaged to come against Christianity. We look at it even in Canada where, uh, listen, you'll go to jail for preaching against homosexuality. We look at places around uh, around the world where uh, you'll be put to death in the name of Christ. Even though there's time in the middle where there's hardship, It's one of the things that we are told by Jesus to expect. And we've talked about this, right? That We expect persecution. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. We know that it's going to happen. And he says, I'm going to tell you that it's going to happen so that when it does come to pass, and it probably will, we won't be stumbled by it. We won't be confused. As we've looked at this all the way through the book of Daniel, what do we see here? We see this spiritual battle that we are a part of and we see all of the enemies of god coming together more and more and we should expect to see that more and more the closer we get to the end so much so that eventually it becomes a political manifestation but it's the spirit behind it that we bore against For we we to battle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and principalities of darkness and i kind of switch those around but right 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We talked about it last week. That's the battle that we're fighting. That's the hard stuff. That's the stuff that we don't want to talk about. What we do want to talk about is the fact that we win. The enemies of God will fall. That He, the perfect, just, sovereign God, is going to conquer. Those things are going to happen. In verse 27. And both these kings' hearts shall be, shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. So we have the king of the north and the king of the south, Syria and Egypt, coming together to the table. Listen, let's, let's strike a peace accord, but none of it comes to pass. Why? Not as much because they're both there lying and doing mischief, but more because it is not the time for that to happen. For yet the end shall be at the time appointed. The conflict between those countries ends when God says it ends. And it isn't that God is stirring it up. It isn't that God is somehow fueling the fire, so to speak. But he has a plan and a purpose in that. Even though they tried to establish peace treaties, God was not finished with the conflict for his purposes and glory. For his purposes and glory. We experience conflict all around us. We see those, I mean, we see it happening right now over in the Ukraine. We see Russia and and their saber rattling, and hopefully that's all it is. We see those things happening, but in the end, what we do know, what we have an absolute certainty of, is that God has a purpose in that conflict, that his glory is at stake in that venue. And we have the assurance that because he is sovereign, it will transpire the way he wants it to. For his plans and purposes to come to pass. Hard truths of scripture, but truths nonetheless. God isn't the originator of evil, but he'll redeem things for his glory. Verse 35, we jump down there. He's yet for a time appointed. God's timing is perfect. We read that when Jesus was born, that that all came about at the perfect time. God didn't send Jesus immediately after. He, he, he promised and gave all of this foreshadowing, all of this clarity, so that there might be a certain understanding. And When we get to the end, when Jesus talks about, listen, in John chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, everybody knew what that meant. He says, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. What does that mean? Well, it means that when the Son of Man is lifted up and we solely by faith, not by any works or actions that we did, look on Him in belief, we'll be saved just like they were when they saw the serpent in the wilderness, when they were bit by the fiery serpents. God took the time to paint this very clear picture so that we would not have any confusion in His long-suffering not willing that any should perish he made a very clear picture over and over and over of his redemptive purpose and how that would come to pass and in the same way in our era of history currently god is over and over and over by these prophetic statements and, and in 100 200 300 400 years at the end of the millennial reign of christ we'll be able to look back and we can see these things, the accuracy of the prophecy being fulfilled even today. And all of the foreshadowing of everything yet to come so that when we get to that point, there's no equivocation. We know this is exactly what God was talking about in the book of Daniel. God's saying, listen, I'm going to foreshadow this desecration of the temple in Antiochus Epiphanes. So that when my people Israel experience the real thing later, they'll recognize it. Just as he did with Christ. When we see the real thing later, we recognize it. His timing is perfect. He's going to reveal those things as it needs to be. God is working. We have to understand that. We talked about this in the very beginning when we started the book of Daniel, that as we look at these things, that are going on in the world around us, we can be woe as me because everything, the sky is falling. And sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes it is a weighty burden. We see the, the, the increased sinfulness of mankind, which we also read about in Genesis chapter 6. We see, we, we see the, the persecution of believers, which we also read about throughout Scripture and the nation of Israel being persecuted. We see all of these things happening, and it's easy to be overwhelmed by it. And it's easy for us to say, oh, just like those who would not acknowledge the the authority of God's word, say, why is he delaying? When the question is, what should I be doing now? His timing is perfect. Everything will come to pass. The seasons appointed will come to pass at their times. He is sovereignly moving to accomplish his redemptive purpose. And ultimately, the subjection of evil. They was tell me in Psalm one ten, right? That that sit down here until all of your enemies be made your footstool. That's going to happen at its perfect time. And it's easy for us to armchair quarterback that in our finiteness and our foolishness to say, "Oh, I know better than God." If only this would have happened this way, you know. We have this tiny little myopic. Understanding of the events that are unfolding around us even now. Yet God sees the entire thing and brings it to pass for His glory, for His purpose. God is still in control. Doesn't matter if it's a pandemic, doesn't matter if it's truckers revolting around the world. I say that like it's a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Don't misunderstand me, right? It doesn't matter what it is, supply chain issues. Grocery stores, $8, eggs, all of those things, they affect us. We feel the import of it. We feel the burden of it. But God is still in control, and we have to live by faith. The just live by what they see in the news. No. The just live by faith. But if I'm going to live by my faith in the news and what I read there, Where is my authority? Who is my authority? Well, it's not God, and it isn't His Word. The just live by faith. We're going to stand on the promises that He's made. We're going to stand on all the things that we read in Scripture that He has clearly pictured for us, looking forward to those things, and we're going to do the things that we're supposed to do in His absence until He comes, until He calls us home. What are those things? Make disciples, teach them, and live by faith. I mean, there's probably more we could factor in there, but let's say, I mean, you know, be, be ready to give an answer, contend for the faith. Those all factor in too, but here we are. Are we about the Father's business until he comes? Or are we so caught up and distracted by the woe is me stuff that's out there that we're of real uselessness? God is in control. Don't lose heart. Second, God will strengthen. Jump me to verse 32. I want to read verse 33 down to verse 35, and we're going to come back and make an application here. So we have Antiochus Epiphanes. He's here persecuting Israel. We have all of those things happening, the desecration of the temple. All of that is going on. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall fall; shall, shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and, be, and by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. That sounds terrible. That's persecution. That's hardship. That's Israel for the most part. Though we are God's people, we're going to suffer the same, uh, and Jesus warned us about it. Now when they shall fall, they shall be hoping; they shall be helped with a little help. But many shall cleave to them with flatteries. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. The word exploits there, it really means that they shall be take action. They'll take action. Now, we look at this, and when we look back at all of that, and we see the historical fulfillment of all of this, what happens? Ataicus comes in desecrates the temple we have this this righteous family the maccabees and they they lead this revolt against them they end up throwing him out restoring the temple that's what happens that's the history how does this apply to you and i those who know their god he will strengthen and he'll move us to take action he'll move us To do the things that he's called us to do. How do we know if we know God? 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. more than one way ultimately, but. We know that the spirit bears witness with our spirit. We know that we receive that seal, that promise that covenant sign between us and God, the Holy Spirit. But he says this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. couple of things. Number one, we can know. Right, We can know with certainty. It doesn't have to be something that's sort of out there. And how does this come? We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. We are in him that is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me, but no no man comes to the Father, but by me. Christianity is exclusive, it isn't a way to God, it isn't uh, uh, some manifestation, you know, all rivers leading to the same ocean. And, you know, no, it's not that. There is one way. And God makes that very clear. And here we have that confirmation that is through his son, Jesus Christ. It's okay to be exclusive. If we are are not exclusive in our presentation of the gospel, we have lied to people. And I realize that's a very bold statement, and that's maybe a harsh way of saying it, but it is true. We delude them to say that, yeah, you're probably doing okay. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They need Jesus Christ. They need to hear the singular way that God has provided for salvation. It's through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's the only way. First John chapter 2. First of all, it's good news that God is knowable, right? That He's taking the time to reveal Himself. He's taking the time to provide for our desperate need uh, an answer for our sinfulness. 1st Peter chapter 2, excuse me, 1st John chapter 2 verses 3 through 4. And hereby we hereby we do know that we know him. How do we know if we know God? If we keep his commandments. Okay? Let's read on because we can't just stop there. It's not a works-based salvation. He says I know him, see verse verse 4, he says I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. What else did Jesus say about keeping his commandments? He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He doesn't say that if you want to make yourself right before God, you'll keep my commandments. That's not what he says. But remember, as we're talking about obedience, and we've done some study about obedience, right? What does it mean in the the Jewish thought, in 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 the understanding of the audience of Jesus, hearing and doing. I've heard what God has said, and because I believe it, I do it. I operate in it. So here we are, right? When we talk about this, keeping His commandments, when we talk about walking in obedience... It's a response of heart to the faith that is within us. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, it talks about being made new creatures. That everyone in Christ is a new creature, and all things have passed away, and all things have become new. In our oldness, our old life, who we were before Christ, we did one of two things, and probably a little of both. Okay. One, we operated however we wanted to, whatever pleased us. And secondly, we would do those things that would soothe our conscience enough, because I've already done everything that I wanted to do, even those things I shouldn't be doing, because they're wrong. So I do enough good, quote-unquote, I have my own righteousnesses, those things that I might point at and say, look at how good I am that I can soothe my conscience, right? There are those who will come to church on a Sunday morning who don't know Christ. They have righteousnesses all around them, but their righteousnesses, as God says in Isaiah 64, 6, are like filthy rags. They might read their Bibles. They may pray. They might pay tithe. They're coming to church. Those things, apart from Christ, are righteousnesses that God does not accept. The standard that God has set because he makes the rules he's the creator is perfect righteousness righteousness equal to his my righteousness is somewhere down here it doesn't measure up it doesn't mean that reading your bible is wrong it doesn't mean that coming to church is wrong it doesn't mean that tithing or any of those other things are wrong but what it means is that they fall far short of god's standard of perfection When I do those things in an effort to favor God, to somehow make myself acceptable to Him, garbage in, garbage out. On the other side of that, when I've operated in faith, when I've taken the singular way to God through Jesus Christ, that I've confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I believe in my and, and, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, like we read in Romans chapter 10, then we're saved. We get to be born again. Now that isn't just some knowledge where all of a sudden I, yeah, Jesus existed. I mean, it, it isn't a head knowledge. This is just as our fall in Adam was a spiritual descent, this is a spiritual ascent. This is something that takes heart, place in our heart, in our spirit. It's not something that I can just know in my mind. There are a lot of people that believe that Jesus existed, but it never makes it to the heart. When it does make it to the heart, and as Jesus would say when we are born again in John chapter 3, when we take this spiritual ascent and we come to relationship with God, as many as believed on Him, do they gave give He the power to become the sons of God. Now we're in that relationship with God. We are experiencing the exchange of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He was made sin, Jesus Christ was made sin, so that I might be made His righteousness. Right? We talked about the equations this morning in Sunday school because, you know, Full service. Get a little math in Sunday school, too. Why not? Equations. My righteousness does not equal the righteousness of God. Jesus' righteousness, because He is God, equals the righteousness of God. When He gives me His righteousness, it equals God's righteousness. That's the exchange that happened when he was made sin, when he took all of my sin upon him, and he gave me his righteousness by faith in him, when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. I meet the standard. I'm acceptable before him, and he declares me, he justifies me, declares me to be righteous. And that lasts forever. That isn't something that I did once, and now I have to keep doing it again, and it's some no, that is a, Declaration by God and his word does not change. So now what do I do? Now I walk in faith. I hear what God has said and I walk in obedience to it because I love him. Not because I'm trying to earn my way to it. But because I want to serve him because of what he's done for me. It's a reciprocation of the love that we've received in Jesus Christ. So God's going to strengthen us. He's going to give us His grace. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, let us have grace that we might serve Him acceptably. Those who know their God, those who know Christ, who have entered into that relationship with Him, He's going to strengthen them. If we know Christ, we can trust that He is going to be with us and never forsake us. We can trust that here we are, being helping, hoping, helped by him. And in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of the persecutions, in the midst of all those things, he may deliver us. Now, he may deliver us physically. We're out of here. To live His Christ and to die is gain. It gets better, folks, in Christ. It gets better. Or he may remove us from that circumstance. Or he may remove the circumstance from us. One way or another, we can trust that he is for us. but he's also going to move us to action. He tells you and I that here we are strengthened. We've been given grace that so we might serve him acceptably. And all of that is inferring, right, that we're about his business, that we're, that we're somehow engaged in this process of, of what's going on in the world around us. In the same passage, talking about his righteousness and the exchange of righteousnesses, he talks about us being his ambassadors. His representatives to the world around us. That's where we go and make disciples and we teach all nations about him, teaching them to obey whatsoever he's commanded, to walk in obedience because we love him. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're we're close to done. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So just pause there for a moment. Those who are outside of Christ. Those who are, if the gospel be hid. If they're not receptive to it, it's hid because their minds have been corrupted. They're blinded by Satan, by the enemy of God. They're blinded to the truth of, of what Christ has done. Now, is that insurmountable? No, nothing's impossible for God. I don't know who this is. I don't know who that's describing in your life, but there may be somebody. It doesn't mean that God can't save them. It doesn't mean that He doesn't want to. It doesn't mean that He's abandoned the cause. But God is going to operate in His perfect timing. For God who commanded the light, excuse me, verse 5, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus would talk about something similar in John chapter 3. He said, listen, this is condemnation, because God, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, John three seventeen, But the world through him might be saved. But this is condemnation, he says, is that men love darkness rather than light. They choose to hide there. They don't want to acknowledge the authority of God's word, what it says. They don't want to, they don't want to be engaged in that because it means that I am sinful. We don't want to be exposed. There's shame involved in that. So we hide it. But for you and I who are in Christ, the light has shined into our lives, and we saw our need for Christ, and we responded to that in faith. Lord, here you provided everything necessary. And I trust that and I receive that forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power of that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. In other words, we're not good enough. We're, we're those utilitarian jars, those things that, you know, your mason jars, they're not your fine china. You keep them in the same cupboard anymore, right? And that's, you got your good stuff and your mason jars right next to it. But those are utilitarian. They're designed to be used. They have a purpose and a structure and a form for the purpose that they have been created. But if we're going to have the president of the United States over or, you know, the governor or something like that, you're probably not going to give a the mason jar. At my house, that's probably what you're going to get because that's what we got. But you see what I'm saying? We're undeserving of what we've been given. Not because we we, we weren't good enough. We could never earn it. We could never merit it. There it is. The the gospel is that light shining into the darkness. It is the good news. But when we have the good news, we have to have it in its full context. We have to have the bad news associated with it. And if we take it out of that context, then all we've done is soothe people's conscience. There's an affirmation of our sinfulness inherent in the gospel. Second Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to close here. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. <clears throat> and he said unto me, now, now, just for context, this is Paul, right? He's talking about this sword in the flesh that God has given him. This messenger of Satan that buffets him, he says, I pray that God would remove this from me three times this is the response that he receives. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, like what Paul says as a response to that. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, a couple of things. I want to look at two things. Number one, there is no sin that we've committed that would remove us from the ability to be saved. God's grace will cover every sin. Jesus didn't die on the cross for just those sins that are easy. He died on the cross for every sin ever committed. You can't do something so bad that God wouldn't receive you if you exercise faith in Jesus Christ. And secondly, for you and I who are already believers, who are inside Christ, there is nothing that we can do that would remove us from His favor. We're not left somehow... uh, wondering, did I really blow it this time and God's done with me? No. His grace is sufficient, and in fact, it's more than sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, Paul says, as a result of all that, most gladly, I will glory in my infirmities. Those hardships, those hang-ups that I have, I will glory in that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, when we go through all this stuff, when we have those hardships because we know they're coming, Jesus told us they're coming. Because we know God, He says, I will strengthen you. I will glory in those things, in the persecutions, in the hardships, in all of the suffering that we may uh, go through. For when I am weak, when I am without ability, when I am without strength, when I feel Desperate and hopeless, then am I strong. Paul understood who his yoke fellow was. He trusted that Jesus was creator, that he was powerful, that he was gracious, that he was merciful, that he was loving, that he was just. And he did all that he did in faith that Jesus was Lord of all. Do we know the same yoke fellow? Do we know who is beside us, whose burden is easy and whose yoke is light? If we don't know Christ, then we need to know, and the day of salvation is today. We have to reconcile ourselves before God. Listen, our righteousness is not enough. But God in his grace and his mercy towards us said, listen, I will do everything necessary, even taking on flesh for the purpose of dying in your place so that you might be redeemed. And all we have to do is exercise trust, faith in Jesus Christ, that he is Lord, that he is in fact who he says he was, and that he rose again and we'll be saved. For you and I as believers, do we know who our yoke fellow is? Are we trying to pull that burden all on our own? Are we trying to muster up enough courage and strength that when I look at the news and I read the newspaper and I see the posts on Facebook and all of that stuff, that I'm not distraught because I know that I'm not in this alone. That the creator of the universe who said, I will neither, never leave thee nor forsake thee, is right there with me. That he is, in fact, sovereign over all of the events that we're reading about, as dire as they may seem, and bringing them to pass for his purpose and glory and for my best. Do we know our God? Do we know our yoke fellow? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here. We praise you, Lord, for your goodness to us, for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I praise you that in the midst of all the things that are going on in the world around us, and Lord, if we're honest, there's always been things going on in the world around us. There were things going on in the world in previous generations. The truth that you are sovereign, that you are in control, has never changed. God, I thank you for the hope that that brings for us. That as believers, in the midst of all of those things, you said, Lord, Jesus said that there are going to be hardships, there are going to be trials, there's going to be those things that come around us. But in the midst of all of it, Lord, you are with us, never leaving us, never forsaking us. That though there may be those hardships, though there may be persecutions, Lord, with Christ, our yoke is easy and our burden is light. That you will strengthen us, that you will give us the means whereby we can take action and be your ambassadors. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. And as we have just a few moments here today to sing and to give praise for who you are and what you've done, Lord, I pray you'd receive it as the offering of our lips.